Mark 8, verse 22 through 26. The word of God says, they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. May God accomplish this miracle in our hearts today in an increasing way. Eureka. Eureka. It's a interjection. Eureka. If somebody says it, they're drawing on a great tradition of discovery. Eureka. Eureka. It means in Greek, in Koine Greek, it's, it's uh, I found it. I see it. I discovered it. Eureka. California likes that word because the gold miners like to say Eureka, but you go all the way back to kind of the etymology of it, and and it's always attributed to Archimedes. And Archimedes was into floating things. He made a principle, and the principle came after his famous cry of of Eureka. Uh, He was in the bath one day. It's kind of odd, but he was in the bath, and he, he, he noticed something about volume and displacement of water, uh, and no one had ever thought about it like that before, to measure the volume of an object based on the amount of water that's displaced by it. Uh, that's as much as you're going to get from me on the science side of things. And uh, he, he's there in his bath in Syracuse. He jumps out and runs through the streets screaming Eureka and forgot to put on his towel. Archimedes was weird. And ever since then, people have understood that word to be a word of, of astonishing realization, a word that, that, that is, is something that you say when you finally figured it out, when you see something you had never seen before, when your understanding is brought to a more full measure. And hopefully that's something that's happened throughout your life. Maybe you didn't discover you know, some mathematical principle or scientific uh, theory that had never been discovered before, but we've all learned and grown and developed in our understanding. Uh, we've all moved from immaturity to maturity in, in varying ways. I could take you back to your infancy and remind you how your parents celebrated when thumb grasped finger to put puffed rice treat into your mouth, and they went, yay. Nobody claps for you on that anymore, but it was a big deal that day. 
I could take you back to your freshman year of high school and you remember, uh, at least with, with some perspective now, that you didn't know what you know now. You didn't understand what you understand now. And some of that is through difficult lessons that you've learned, trials that you've been through, or realizations of, of your own foolishness. Uh, nobody, I don't think, looks back at their freshman year in high school and thinks, nailed it. Uh, it it's, it's just uh, part of growing up, part of maturing. And though those moments aren't always cataclysmic moments that, that cry out eureka, we all understand the idea of growing in our understanding, of developing in our knowledge of something, and our, more than just knowledge, appropriation of it. And hopefully that's what's happening to you in your college years. You're, you're developing and deepening your understanding in a particular field that you might apply that uh, to your life someday. And for those of you that are working, uh, you're, you're gaining uh, an ability in whatever trade or field that you're working in, and you're developing a skill, you're understanding an industry, and you're, you're coming to realize more and more things you didn't learn the first day on the job. All of that is just an obvious example of what it means to grow in our understanding, our realization, our perception of things. What's happening in Mark chapter 8, especially the section that we started to look at a few weeks ago in Mark 8 verse 1, where Jesus feeds the 4,000, is a turning point in the gospel of Mark that runs for chapter 8, 9, and 10. Mark has displayed Jesus' power for seven chapters. He's shown Jesus to be a miracle worker, one who has power from a divine source. Uh, He's displayed his great ability to calm the sea and to heal diseases and to cast out demons and even to raise the dead. But it's not until chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark that we encounter a miracle in Mark's arrangement that has taken place in all the other Gospels many times already. And that is the miracle of seeing, of Jesus restoring sight to a blind person. Jesus healed lots of blind people in his ministry, and those accounts are, are sprinkled throughout the Gospels. But in the Gospel of Mark, he reserves this first healing for his own literary purposes to be in this fulcrum in Mark chapters 8 through 11, this turning point in Mark's Gospel where Mark is showing not just Jesus' power, but the importance of realizing who Jesus really is. And this will be a great struggle for the disciples, as we already saw in uh, the previous paragraph. Their understanding is muted. It's dulled. And Jesus used the healing, the prior healing, of a deaf-mute man to illustrate the disciples' inability to really hear what Jesus was saying. And now he's going to heal a blind man to further show that the disciples really don't understand what they're seeing either. That their understanding and their perception of of Jesus, though they've seen his authority as Messiah for nearly uh, their entire time with Jesus for these eight chapters in Mark, they now need to come to a place of comprehending what the Messiah must do. That the identity of the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the anointed one, the appointed one, the one that the Old Testament has been 
leaning towards and waiting for and the people of God have been anticipating to redeem them and deliver them and save them, they need to realize that Jesus is this promised one, but they need to go further than that and understand what it means that he's the Messiah. And the short answer is that they have to come to comprehend the reality that the Messiah is going to suffer. And this is going to take an extraordinary miracle on God's part in opening their eyes to this truth. So in this little paragraph, nestled here in the midst of this moment where the Lord is trying to press on his disciples that they need to grow in their understanding of who he is and what he's called to do. Having seen his authority demonstrated by all his miracles, Mark now places this one miracle of Jesus's healing a blind person, something that Jesus would have been very famous for. But in Mark's telling of the story, he's reserved it for this point so that the disciples' understanding and perception could be made like a parable in the healing of the deaf man and the blind man. And in the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida, like the other miracles that Jesus has performed throughout Galilee and and all through his ministry, he's showing that, that Jesus is the one who will fulfill the call of the Messiah to bring salvation to God's people. But it also serves as an acted out parable or a demonstrable metaphor for the failure of the religious leaders who we heard last time be warned uh, about, we were all warned about their inability to see who Jesus is and understand who he is. And so Jesus rebuked them and told his disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And so this miracle comes right on the back of that miracle and the failure of the, the leaders of Israel, the representatives of Israel to see and to hear that the kingdom of God is dawning onto the scene. And so Jesus restores this man's sight in a peculiar and unusual two-step healing miracle, unlike anything Jesus ever does and shows in doing it that way that the disciples need a similar experience on a spiritual level so that their eureka moment of realizing who Jesus is, which comes in the next paragraph at Caesarea Philippi with Peter's confession, will be first a dawning moment of seeing who Jesus is, a eureka moment of of realizing something that they had not fully understood before, but will begin a journey of a deepened understanding that will not look like this, gradual climbing in their understanding, but will be filled like the discipleship journal journey of all of us with starts and stops and starts and stumbles and progress and a step back. That's what the disciples' faith looks like because that's often what our faith looks like. And so in looking at a passage like this, uh, an enacted miracle, an enacted parable, we learn something about our own spiritual understanding growing and being illuminated if you're with us and you're not a Christian yet, if you're still kind of considering 
who God is and, and what the claims of Jesus are, what you're seeing before you in this paragraph is exactly what God can do to you. He can bring you to a point beyond the intellectual struggles that maybe you have with Christianity, belong the, uh, beyond the uh, difficulties you have with the, with the claims of Jesus or the demands of Jesus on his disciples. Something can happen to you by an act of God, by the touch of Jesus, that can transform you from someone who did not see Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world to someone who not only sees it to be true, but adores him and longs to know him more and insists on following him all the days of your life. If you're a new believer, you've only been a Christian for a little while, and that describes so many of you who are young people at the outset of your Christian life. If you're new to the Christian faith, uh, just learning those first steps of discipleship, this passage serves as an encouragement to you that though your steps may not be very true right now, though you stumble at times, it is Jesus's work to increasingly clarify and grow your understanding. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, I think you'll leave a passage like this just more grateful for the grace of God that brought you to where you are. That apart from God's intervention and apart from Jesus's touch, you would not see what you see so clearly now. You wouldn't know what you know so sweetly now. And so let's look at, at this beautiful arrangement of this first healing of a blind person in Mark's account and learn what it means to grow in our spiritual understanding, what it means for God to illuminate spiritual truth to sinful people. The best way to do this, I think, is, is to, to raise above the, the narrative here. Uh, it, it's a simple narrative. It, it looks just like every other healing in Jesus's ministry, it follows a really typical pattern except for the unusual element that's inserted in. So most of these, these parables, they, they have Jesus being um, approached by concerned people or a person who needs his help. Uh, there's usually a request element, and then there's uh, a healing, usually with a pronouncement by Jesus, and, and then, especially in Mark's gospel, a reminder to not go tell this all over the place, because Jesus had a particular purpose in how and when he was revealing himself, and, and then that, that's kind of how the, the miracles go. This one looks a lot like that except it looks almost identical to the healing that we looked at in chapter 7, verse 31 to 37. It's the healing of the deaf and mute man. Those two healings, the one we're looking at today and the one we looked at a few weeks ago, have some really striking similarities. Both are, uh, they're instigated by people, it says, unnamed people who bring this person who has a great need to Jesus. Both of these miraculous enacted parables involve the word 
parakaleo, which is a word for uh, to beseech or to beg Jesus. And so the, the unnamed people in both passages, according to Mark's account, beseech Jesus. They request, they beg, they strongly ask, they repeatedly uh, seek his favor and his healing. In both passages, he brings the object of his compassion to a private audience, pulls them away from the crowd. In the Bethsaida passage, he brings them completely out of the town uh, limits so that he can have a private audience with them. In both passages, he lays his hands on these people, physically touching the area that is afflicted on the person. In both of these passages, and this is one of the unique features, he employs his own saliva in their healing. It's these two passages and one other in the Gospels where he turns uh, mud into a paste with saliva that Jesus employs his spit into the healing process. And if you have questions about that, you can listen to the sermon last time where I did a 10-minute excursus on how we think about spit differently than the ancients did. Fascinating stuff for me. And then the sixth significant parallel with the healing we looked at in chapter 7 of the mute and deaf man and the blind man at Bethsaida after the unnamed group and the beseeching and the private audience and the touch of the Lord, the saliva. The sixth one is the injunction to silence. And so these are perfectly parallel passages that are framing this whole account and trying to show us something about our spiritual understanding. So rather than just look at kind of the the details of this passage for an outline, I'd like to give you the realities that I think are being represented theologically here. So I have three of them. Let me give them one by one. Number one, the first truth I want you to understand in this passage is that sin is blinding. Sin is blinding. Now, what what do we mean by that? Well, first look at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. Now, Jesus, as you remember, is in the northern part of the Galilee regions. He's getting out of the Decapolis area, which is more Syrophoenician, pagan land up above. He's getting closer to the Sea of Galilee again, where he likes to cross over. And and as he does, he gets to one of these uh, pretty close to the coast towns, a place called Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is a familiar place to readers of the gospel because Jesus has performed many miracles in Bethsaida in the other synoptics. And it's in Matthew chapter 11 that he pronounces, and in Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus pronounces a woe on Bethsaida and Chorazin. He, He curses the towns. He tells them that if the miracles that were produced in those towns were in Tyre and Sidon or or Sodom and Gomorrah, those pagan cities would have repented, but Bethsaida does not. And so Jesus promises that he will not do another miracle in Bethsaida because of the hardness of their hearts. This is likely one of the reasons Jesus has this man leave the town with him so that he can keep his promise and his oath to not perform any more miracles in this hard-hearted town as an act of judgment. Even there, we begin to see this reality that the Bible insists upon that sin causes blindness. Sin causes a hardness of heart. Now, physical blindness, Jesus had to teach his disciples, is not 
directly caused by a person's sin or the sin of their parents. The Jews ordinarily believed that. If someone was born with any kind of physical difficulty, they said the parents must have sinned. It was really a cruel kind of theology. And Jesus debunked that with his disciples, telling them neither this man nor his parents sinned, uh, but he was blind for the uh, purpose of glorifying God. That's in a different passage. But the idea behind sin and blindness being associated with each other isn't physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. An inability to perceive. An unwillingness to see things as God says that they are. This is why Jesus has indicted the Pharisees in the previous passage. Remember after feeding the 4,000 and performing that miracle, Jesus has his disciples pick up all the leftovers. He already had them do this when he fed 5,000 peoples. And right after that miracle, the Pharisees come to test him and he grieves at their hardness of heart and says, why does this generation, this is chapter 8, verse 12, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And he left and crossed to the other side. You see, the Pharisees thought, since they're in charge of the religious condition of Israel, they should be in charge of Jesus too. And so they said, do this, perform this miracle, show us something. And Jesus forbid it and said, I will not show you another sign. His disciples saw all that, and so he tells them, in another use of kind of the concept of something you can see, a sign, verse 15, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Jesus is telling his disciples to open their eyes to the danger of these false teachers, to look out for their influence, their leavening presence, where on one side, the Herod side, they could fall into licentiousness and worldliness and sin. And on the Pharisee side, they fall into externalism and legalism and a man-centered, man-made religion. Jesus warns his disciples about those two sides, and they need to have their eyes open to that danger. The disciples are missing the point in the previous story that we looked at last time. Verse 16, they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not, look at verse 17, see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And then he reminds them simply of how many baskets they picked up. And rather than the numerology of the baskets, what does seven represent? What does 10 represent? I think the point was they remember the bare facts of the miracle. They remember how many baskets they picked up, but they don't really see what Jesus was doing there. And so this blindness that the disciples are experiencing Their eyes work perfectly well. They they maybe needed corrective lenses, but they could see perfectly fine. They weren't physically blind, but they were spiritually dull in their understanding. And they had that in common with the Pharisees. 
And though they understood more about Jesus than the Pharisees did, they still were at a point where they deserved the rebuke of Jesus that they didn't have eyes but failed to see, ears but failed to hear, and they did not remember. Verse 21, you can sense Jesus's exasperation when he says, do you still not understand? You see, sin is blinding to our understanding. Ephesians 4, 17 says, unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God. We tend to think about sin just as the bad stuff we do, right? But sin is deeper than just the the fruit of sin, the actions that come from being a sinner. I mean, all of us, because of our parents, Adam and Eve, are sinners by nature. And we, we sin because we want to sin. And that reality shows us that sin is something that affects our minds, our desires. It's something that's inside of us. And the fact that sin blinds us and blunts our understanding and, and makes us stupid to the things of God shows us just how pervasive our sin can be. You like the memes? I know you do. I like a good meme. One of my favorite memes for many years now has been the meme of uh, Latarian Milton. He's the kid who does hood rat stuff with his friends. Chubby kid, handsome little guy, seven years old, swipes his grandma's SUV keys for her Dodge Durango. I think this is in Florida. And goes on with his buddy, uh, the seven-year-old. They go on a little, you know, joyride and crash into a bunch of cars in the Walmart parking lot. And the cops somehow get the car stopped, pull the kid out. And the famous kind of meme is is... Uh, from the interview that the news had with this kid and his grandma. It's really, really something. The grandma's great in it. She says, uh, if the cameras weren't here, I'd whoop his behind. Uh, and he, they say, Why, why'd you do this, little guy? You know, it was really dangerous. Somebody want, could get hurt. He said, I, I just want to do hood rest stuff with my friends. And, and I get that. I do. I, I remember when I wanted to do hood rest stuff with my friends. And occasionally I'll still want to do hood rat stuff with my friends because of the old nature. But the, the interview with this kid goes on and the interviewer says, you know, but aren't you thinking about how this, this was, you know, bad for grandma and, you know, really, really caused a lot of problems. They tried to reason with the kid. And, and his quote is this. He said, I want to do it because it's fun. It's fun to do bad things. I mean, this kid is, this is, a, this is an excellent theologian. I think he knows more about corrupt and depraved human nature than, than some professional theologians. You see, sin doesn't just make us do hood rat stuff, bad stuff. It, it, it gets us on a deeper level than that. It affects our loves, our desires, our wants. 
And from our infancy, they're broken. Augustine, the most famous uh, biographer of the Christian life, wrote in his Confessions uh, an account from his childhood of stealing pears. And the thing that made it such a, a grievous sin wasn't that you know he took pears off the neighbor's tree. It's the fact that he chucked those pears on the street because he didn't even like to eat pears. He stole because he wanted to steal. You see, sin has blinded us and it's corrupted us and it's changed us and it's dulled our understanding. So much so that you could not see things as God wants you to see them apart from divine intervention. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Do you get that? Well, if you're a Christian, you do. Because there was a time in your life when you were not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, where God had not changed your desires, where your spiritual senses were dulled and twisted and broken. And that's why sin is so blinding. And so this man's condition becomes a a metaphor for the spiritual reality that the disciples are, are struggling with and that the Pharisees have embodied and hardened themselves in. They don't have eyes that are able to see and ears that are able to hear, and they still do not understand. And so Jesus, who's also operating on the very basic level of God in compassion, miraculously healing a man. This isn't just a a parable or a metaphor. This is an actual blind man who needs help. And so Jesus tenderly uh, puts his hand on the man's hand. He'd been led like this his whole life, likely. And, And some surmise that maybe he was blind from an accident because of what he says about trees. But even a person blind from birth knows that a tree is a big vertical thing. So I don't know that that proves it, but the man in that world, there's no social services in ancient Rome. Uh, He would be completely uh, subservient to the kindness of others. Uh, Most blind people in the ancient world were beggars. Uh, Someone would have to lead them from wherever they stayed at night to a place by the market where they could just put out their hand and hope that someone could give them uh, bread or some figs or a little bit of money, a coin, and that's how they survived. Completely uh, up to the kindness of their family or other people to care for them. That would have been the experience of this blind man being led by the hand his whole life. And then Jesus, compassionate, beautiful, powerful, amazing Jesus, holds this man by the hand and takes him out of Bethsaida. Jesus then applies spit to the man's eyes, um, more on that last week, puts his hands on him, fulfilling the request, beseech him to lay his hands on them. There's a lot of history in the Old Testament about laying on of hands being a a symbolic way of of showing uh, the connection with the person, uh, the blessing of God, uh, the, the laying on of hands. And so Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes, on the man, after putting spit on the man's eyes. And Jesus asks a searching question that is 
pretty odd. Do you see anything? I mean, that's the kind of question you'd ask if I was healing you. I'd ask that question, like, did it work? Jesus doesn't ask that kind of question. Jesus doesn't say, you know, how's that? Do I need to turn it up a little? I wear anteojos, as they say. Um, I have a condition called uh, nearsightedness. It's the opposite of what it sounds like. And so I, I wear these things. And I go to the optometrist, I don't know, every couple of years when they tell me to go. And they, they, they put the thing, the giant, you put your chin in the thing. And then they put a thing that's, I would think, unnecessarily large with the technologies we have today. But it's an unnecessarily large thing that puts lots of different lenses. And he goes, you have glasses, you know this? the right one or the left one? You like this one or this one? You like this one or this one? He does it to each eye, this one or this one? And he keeps like dialing it in and, and trying to get me to you know, decide if that hot air balloon is clearer than the next hot air balloon. And, and it's a lot of pressure, honestly, and I don't think I'm very good at it. And I'm like, is this really how we do this? We just try a bunch of different lenses, this one or this one, this one, uh, that one. No, go back to the other one. No, too clear, scary, back it off. So I... Uh, I, I don't know if I, if I land in the right spot, you know, but I, I do it every couple years and, and I guess, you know, it, it's, it's, it's how it, it works. But Jesus asks an optometrist kind of question here, doesn't he? How's that? <laughs> Can you see it? Why does the omniscient Jesus ask that? Well, he asks it because he's doing something beyond just healing this man. He's asking so that the disciples go, huh? I mean, they've seen Jesus heal lots of blind people in his ministry. Mark chooses to put this particular instance as the first of all the healings in Mark, the blindness healing. And so the disciples had to have go, what, why, why is Jesus asking that question? And it's because Jesus is intentionally performing a two-stage miracle to expose that There is a condition that this man has that everybody knew about. He couldn't see. He lived in complete darkness. And it paralleled the condition that the disciples had experienced and that the Pharisees had embodied. Can you see anything? Usually that's where the pronouncement goes. Go and sin no more. Rise up and take your bed and walk. Go show yourself to the synagogue leaders. Don't tell anyone. Not a question. And the reason it's a question is because he's paralleling verse 17, his question there to the disciples. What are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear and don't you remember? Or do you still not see? Verse 17. Sin blinds us. It's not just the bad stuff we do. It clouds our vision. It blocks us from knowing what is true and right. I mean, the reason unbelievers adopt the entire complicated and and to us seemingly illogical worldviews is because 
the God of this world, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel to the glory of Christ. Do you understand how significant a thing it is for a blind man to see? Well, do you not also see that it's just as significant, if not of greater significance, for God to put a miracle in place in your spiritual sight that takes you from complete blindness and darkness to a clarified vision, to know that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. This is the effects of sin being blinding that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Because if your eyes were open, truly open, to the way this world really is, to the glory of God, to the wickedness of sin, to the lostness of your soul apart from Jesus. If your eyes were truly open, you would see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. But if they're still covered with scales, still sewn shut spiritually, then they're blocked from seeing what you so desperately need to see, which is the light of the gospel that leads you to see the glory of Christ. This is why Jesus is always associated with light so often in the Bible. This is the judgment, John three nineteen. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You see, it's not mainly an intellectual problem that that keeps a person from coming to Christ. It's not that they need more data, mainly. It's a moral problem. It's a moral problem. It's that we like to do bad stuff. We loved darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil, and that needs to be exposed. It's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are the blind leading the blind. What an indictment, right? They had no spiritual perception, claiming to be spiritual leaders, to people who had no spiritual perception. The blind leading the blind. Sin is blinding. And this man's condition illustrates the spiritual deafness and blindness, both of the religious leaders and the danger that the disciples are in of having the same exact sickness. And so he shows them by way of example of this man that they need to open their eyes to see who he really is and sin is what's preventing it. Second theological statement briefly, uh, salvation is seeing Salvation is seeing. If sin is blinding, salvation is seeing. And and this man is rescued from his condition in two stages. Verse 24, he looks up and says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. One of my favorite lines in all the Bible. Uh, The Greek is all busted up there. Uh, This is is a clean NIV version. I see people, they look like trees walking around. In in Greek, it's like this. Uh, I see, blepo, people that I see, uh, Aro walking as trees. Why would he put it so staccato? I think because that's probably exactly how the guy said it. 
so overwhelmed by light rushing into his eyes for the first time ever or for the first time in a long time, he stutter steps through this experience and he just says, I see people that I see walking as trees. Awesome. And I bet he was content with that. I don't think that was a complaint. I think that was this incredible moment of furthering and opening and healing and he loved what he saw. I think he would have been really happy to see people like trees for for lots of days to come. This was a miracle he could see and he couldn't see before but Jesus does it this way because salvation is seeing and now the man is seeing. He says, I see, with two different words, I see, I see people that I see walking as trees. But there's some lingering blindness there, isn't there? Because people don't look like trees except some people do. And, but if you get up close, we don't look like trees. We're just tall. And so he doesn't know what he's seeing and he doesn't understand. And, and it's just where the disciples are at, right here. The Pharisees are still totally blind. The disciples are seeing everything like trees, like it's blurry to them. And they're going to continue to be very blurry. And, and the difference between the disciples and the Pharisees is 1 Corinthians 2.14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that are spiritual. You see, they're in the process like this blind man of moving from blindness to sight. And so Jesus, after the man looks up and says that, Jesus puts his hands again on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Everything clearly. In verse 23 through 25, there's eight different Greek words for nine different instances of seeing. I can't think of very many English words for seeing. Seeing, vision, watch, look. I'm out. In Greek, he uses eight different words. He just wants you to hear, see, look, see, opened eyes, see, look. Look at all the seeing happening here because this, this moment of healing is a moment of salvation and Jesus has opened this man's eyes completely and he sees everything clearly. And then Jesus says, go home. But don't go through the village. Bethsaida doesn't get the testimony. They're not privileged to it because they've already rejected Jesus. A final theological word or concept, it's that growing is clarifying. Growing is clarifying. What you see in the disciples is the progress of faith. You see starts and stumbles And they will not see it clearly, even at Caesarea Philippi. We'll look at that next time we're together. We'll see Jesus' identity on clear display in the words of Peter in chapter 8, verse 29. Who do you say I am, Jesus says. Peter answers, you are the Christ. And he starts to see everything clearly. But... In a minute, he's going to say, 
you will not be killed, Lord, verse 32. And Jesus is going to look at Peter in verse 33 and say, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in your mind, but the things of men. I hope you get that. Just because God opened your eyes to see Jesus and to behold his glory doesn't mean that he's done with your understanding. We all have a lot of growing to do. And it's a growing that involves the illumination that came. That's the theological word is illumination. Uh, the, the, the work that the Spirit does in opening your eyes to behold spiritual things. That's not just something that happened the day you were saved. It's something that began before you were a Christian as, as God started to bring conviction to your heart and bring people into your life that made you recognize your sin and, and first told you about Jesus even when you were rejecting him. This was a, a gradual process and, and salvation isn't this gradual process but the experience on our side is because there is a moment when you are saved, when you're transferred the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light but don't you see the, the increased understanding that you received leading up to the day of your conversion, your new birth. And don't you see how much more growing we need to do? For Peter, it wouldn't come. The disciples, it wouldn't come right away. They spend a couple more chapters rebuking Jesus as he talks about his death. But when the cross comes and the tomb is empty, like the man, they'll say, we see everything clearly now. And Peter will stand up in front of a hostile crowd, scared as a mouse, Peter, and he'll preach in the book of Acts with boldness like a lion. How does it happen? Whether you need this initial understanding to open your eyes, whether you've, you've had your eyes opened, or whether you still see things uh, foggy, do you understand that in this miracle, this physical miracle, and in the parable, the only thing that can explain it, the sole means of the healing, of the increased understanding is this. It's the repeated touch of Jesus. The disciples were not understanding. And then they misunderstood. But by the end... They'll see everything clearly. Mark 15, verse 39. And then the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard this cry and saw he died. And he said, surely this man was the son of God. You see, it would take the cross and an empty tomb to see everything clearly. This is not simply a transformation and restoration of one helpless, sad, blind man. This is a description and an illustration of the miracle that happens every single time. Eyes are open spiritually to behold the glory and the mission of Jesus. 
This is a parable of perception, a metaphor of mercy on display when God causes us to see what before we could not see and we're blind to and then sometimes gradually and by stages opens our eyes until we can see in part and then more fully as we grow and perceive and understand and adore all that there is for us in Jesus and increasingly so all the way to glory. And it's why heaven is described in Revelation 21, 23 as an eternal city where they don't need to have sunlight for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. That's what will grow us and guide us to a full understanding of the glory of Christ for all eternity. For some of you, it needs to start today. Come to Jesus by faith, trust him, and see that everything that he said is true and for your good and to change you and to make you right with God and to give you the forgiveness of sins that you can only find at the cross and the victory that will only come through an empty tomb. Father, thank you for your word and for the miracle that's taken place in and through the Spirit's work of illumination. A lifelong ministry to believers, starting before we were converted, growing and grasping truth about Jesus, being exposed to truth, and then apprehending and loving that truth. Father, would your Spirit convict the world like you promised it would? Bring lost sinners back to being right with you. May the reality of judgment be so clear and may that conviction of seeing sin as repulsive and Christ as glorious in our eyes grow us more and more to comprehend the glory of Jesus. Help us when we study the Bible, when we listen to the the preaching of your word, when we pray to you, when we obey you in, in, a, in many ways that you show us to obey. Help us to grow in clarity in the knowledge of divine things to give all the glory and credit to your spirit that shows us that because of your work in our hearts, we can know the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.